Have you experienced dream invasion? Have I dreamed in AR? <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Reality Studies, a show that tries to clarify the chaos from culture to the cosmos. I'm your host, Jesse Damiani. Each episode, I sit down with leading thinkers for big idea dialogues about the research, concepts, and questions that animate their approaches to reality. Joining me today is Asad J. Malik, the CEO of Jadu AR. Asad is an augmented reality trailblazer whose critically acclaimed narrative storytelling projects, Terminal 3 and A Jester's Tale, premiered at Tribeca and Sundance Film Festivals, positioning Asad as a visionary in the space before completing his undergraduate degree. He has directed next-generation AR experiences featuring icons like Serena Williams and Lil Nas X. Asad was named one of Variety's 10 Innovators to Watch, Rolling Stone's Future 25, Forbes 30 Under 30, and Adweek's Young Influentials. Ever since Minority Report and Iron Man in the Aughts, augmented reality has been touted as the next big thing just around the corner. But the reality of bringing the medium to the mainstream has proven much more difficult than expected. Looking at you, Google Glass. True, Pokemon Go made a splash, but that was seven years ago. And their developer hasn't been able to duplicate the success since, even partnered with major names like Harry Potter and the NBA. They flat out canceled projects with Transformers and Marvel. I don't mean this as a knock to Niantic. They're doing important work in the development of the AR ecosystem. All I'm trying to say is that AR is hard. That's obviously true on a technical level. Think about the amount of computing power and bandwidth required to translate digital objects and information seamlessly, instantaneously, and believably into your physical space. Lots of folks are still plugging away at those problems, making AR faster, leaner, less likely to burn your face, etc. But in my mind, the bigger challenge to AR is a social one. AR is a whole new medium. It's not just another platform or set of apps. When done well, it has the potential to become a new language, redefining our relationship to both digital and physical space. This is something that Asset has really understood since he started developing AR experiences in college in the mid-2010s. He has seemingly always had an intuition for what the innate potential of the medium is, alongside a willingness to pivot in totally new directions to learn from what participants, players, and the public at large want to experience in AR. The advantage startups have over major incumbents like Niantic, also Apple, Google, and Meta, is speed. Asset has made use of this advantage, steering Jadu through different expressions of AR, holograms for social media videos, Web3 integrations, and now a fighting game. And that's not even mentioning the original work he did as a director, focusing on AR headsets, creating era-defining installations at film festivals. On paper, it sounds like a weird trajectory, but having witnessed its evolution, I can say that it makes sense in the social context of the medium. We recorded the following interview in Asad's office right before the game launched. But Jadu is officially out now and already cracked the top 50 on the entertainment chart on the App Store. This feels to me like an early confirmation that the public is still interested in AR. They just need an experience that works, where the fun is not that it's a new shiny gadget, but rather in that it's just fun on its own terms and offers something unique. My thesis, which I've developed in part by observing the work of Asad and Jadu, is that the future of AR will be formed by how people use it. I know it might seem weird to talk about a fighting game as a medium-defining moment, but I see it as having the potential to inform the early interaction mechanics of AR on a public scale, and more broadly, the expectations for how AR fits into our daily lives. Obviously, the Apple Vision Pro is going to play a big part in the development of AR, as is the MetaQuest 3 and a host of other notable devices. 
But we're still a long way from everybody feeling comfortable donning headsets and other doodads. In the meantime, the language for how people use AR is emerging organically on mobile games like Jadu. So this is why I was super excited to get into it with Asid. We look back on his early experiences, reflections on those early days of AR, the formation of Jadu, his thoughts on the state of the medium, and much more. It's a wide-ranging conversation with one of the leading figures in a medium that many believe will define digital culture of the future. So I'm thrilled to present this interview with Asid J. Malik. Asid, thank you for being here. Thank you, Jesse. Here we are. Here we are. So as I said in the intro, you have a storied career in augmented reality. Tell me a little bit about what first attracted you to the medium. I'd been working in technology since I was a teenager in Pakistan. Initially, I was just making a lot of websites and trying to get paid here and there for some search engine optimization and whatnot. And after doing that for honestly like six or seven years, when it time to go to college, I decided to go to, to an art school instead of an engineering-oriented school. And when I went to Bennington, which is you know a school in Vermont where I went for college, I realized that not only did I want to work in technology, but I wanted to do work that was expressive and creative in nature. And the three mediums that were up on the table that I thought would be significant in my lifetime were AI, VR, and AR. AR. And AR was the one that really caught my imagination. You know, on one hand, VR already had a lot of development that was going on into it. It was already the empathy machine and Oculus was already, you know, a big deal. A lot of people were working on it. But AR as a medium of expression was very underutilized. People were doing enterprise-oriented things or warehouse-oriented things. But there wasn't really much happening with AR as an expressive medium. And I thought that, you know, augmenting your reality and changing your surroundings with the context of your surroundings with digital objects was just really compelling. So I went ahead and I got myself a Microsoft HoloLens developer kit while in college and just dove into it. And initially it was just a bunch of one-off concept-oriented projects that you couldn't really use them, but we would just make videos and put them online. And those videos really did well and were you know, spread around. And it became clear to me that uh, people were very interested in what is possible with this medium. And we just doubled down from there. Mm. What do you feel like people were attracted to even at that time when you were sharing these videos? I mean, like on a very basic level, just the idea of seeing 3D objects in the real world and the digital lives that we're used to interact with the physical lives we're used to is just a really compelling idea, you know, without getting too conceptual with it, just purely seeing a hologram of something in your space is really strong. People want to imagine like exciting things in the future. And this starts to paint a picture of what the world could look like once some of the world that we're building digitally starts to, you know, interact with the world we know physically. Mm. Your breakout project, Terminal 3, made the rounds um, in terms of people's attention uh, with the festival circuit. Could you share a little bit about what that project was? Sure. So, you know, the origin of Terminal 3 was really one of my professors at Bennington encouraging me to bring my own story and background into my work because, you know, we're doing work that's interesting from a technical perspective. It's a new medium. There are a lot of new things that you're trying to discover in it. But in order to give it compelling content, he thought that my own life story, which was me growing up in small town Pakistan, Osama bin Laden was killed in the town I was born. 
moving to the U.S., going through a lot of interrogations. Um, the FBI interrogated me once. They actually showed up to my school in Vermont to interrogate me, which was definitely, you know, a pivotal Surprising. moment in my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I thought that was really compelling subject matter for a technology like AR that is so deeply rooted in scanning technologies, which also is something that, you know, is used in military-based things a lot. So I thought that was an interesting parallel. So Terminal 3 was basically a project in which the viewer would interrogate various holograms of supposedly Muslim passengers in a secondary screening room in an airport. So we premiered the project at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2018. Viewers would walk into an interrogation room that we had built, and they would put on the Microsoft HoloLens, and meet these holograms of real people that we had interrogated. And you would play the role of a customs officer actually asking questions and going through that narrative with them. Um, so that was that was the project, yeah. I recognize this may be sensitive, but are you able to share what the FBI interrogation was about? Yeah, so basically I went to a high school in the Netherlands, which was really a life-changing moment for me, getting a scholarship to go to the Netherlands and study at UWC which um, is an international high school where they, they have kids from 90 different nationalities, all 16-year-olds that have left their country to go to school together in a boarding school. We had people that had royal families, and we had refugees all in the same school. Mm. And so because of that, I had friends in Libya who were involved in the revolution when Gaddafi was overthrown. So I found myself in an interesting place after arriving at my school, at my college in the U.S., where I helped them get a license for a conference to be held in Libya, and they invited me to speak. And I thought that that was, you know, I wanted to go see what a, com a country post-war looks like. So I went and stayed in Libya for two months. And when I returned, and this was in 2016, Unsurprisingly, the FBI wanted to speak to me because obviously a Pakistani kid coming to the U.S., staying here for three months and then suddenly going and living two hours away from an ISIS training camp, you know, triggers some some alarms. So that's that's why um, the FBI came to Bennington to interrogate me. Mm. Yeah. You, you brought up this episode that I was actually totally unaware of from your life of going to high school in the Netherlands with all these different people from all over the world. Did that factor in at all to like what has led you into augmented reality do you think absolutely i mean you know that was not many people get an experience like that where there is no dominant culture because every country you live in there is some dominant culture right like if you're in pakistan you're in, involved with a lot of pakistani culture and in the u.s that's very much the case because you know u.s like people have strong political opinions here and people assume each other a lot about each other's identities based on one thing they know about them. So going to an, a high school like this where there were kids from every different country, you saw various cultures emerge in various aspects of life. So for example, a lot of people would use Arabic slang, mm. even like people from other countries would use Arabic slang in my high school because that was the slang that somehow, you know, rose to the top. And that was the case with, you know, a lot of other aspects of life. And it, it just creates a really global perspective. I knew that I had to be involved in technology with that kind of global mindset and make sure that that comes through in the work that we're doing. So a lot of the early projects being political in nature were tied to the fact that I went to a school that was also very political in nature. So Terminal 3 was definitely a social impact oriented project. 
how did you feel? Well, first of all, let me, let me rewind for a second. Can you situate us in what the VR AR industry or scene felt like at that time and what the conversations were then? Cause I think it's an important preface that, that we should set for the, for yeah. the audience. Yeah, it, it was an interesting scene. This was when there were a lot of 360 videos in VR. Um, and a lot of them were very empathy driven. So, you know, Chris Milk had coined the phrase empathy machine. And there were a bunch of projects that people were recording in refugee camps in Syria and, you know, the earthquake in Haiti. And so that was definitely the predominant, you know, idea floating around in VR. Sure, there was fiction stuff as well, you know, very Pixar-esque animation, 10-minute long projects. But there wasn't really anything of that nature happening in AR. The reason I was interested in tackling similar subject matter but in AR was because I felt like VR... VR just felt so removed from your immediate reality that it it just felt like a lot of people would have this notion of, hey, like I'm putting this headset on and I'm in a refugee camp in Syria now. And when I take it off, I'm in a film festival in New York in a very like liberal, progressive, privileged kind of setting. And you would have this kind of delusional sense of moral superiority that you now know how it feels to be in the shoes of someone. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I thought that the opposite, where someone comes to you, was more compelling. Mm. So you're in your space. You're grounded in your reality. Nothing else is changing about it. But now a foreign presence is in your space. And you have to address that and deal with that and face the challenges that come with it. I thought that was... a uh, a more interesting frame for similar subject matter and it f- suited the medium really well. Mm. Yeah. And then the next year you had Jester's Tale, which yeah. insofar as all creative acts are political was very not specifically directly political the way Terminal 3 was. I think a lot of people felt like it was it, you were staying within AR and you were still at the edge of what AR could do, but it was very for, in terms of content extremely different. What was your decision making in terms of jumping from the more social impact oriented representation oriented the, that sort of thread you're describing in that in the vr community the kind of yeah the, the great empathy machine and then going to this project that's really dark and gritty and just uh experimental and strange yeah i felt like i had said what i wanted to say about group identity related stuff of like i'm from pakistan this is my background here's things you can confront that I can give you. And it's with this frame of it being like a social values driven kind of project. But eventually I just want to make work in AR. I think any work I make in AR is inherently political because I'm from a very different background at the end of the day in a a transplanted in a very different culture. And it doesn't have to be inherently that. It just is that by nature. So with Adjuster's Tale, we just wanted to look into the technology itself and the story that we made was really bizarre and abstract, which is how I think new mediums should emerge. And it was also somewhat of a response to what was generally happening on the Magic Leap and on on the HoloLens and also on a lot of VR headsets, work that was incredibly clean, family friendly, very Pixar esque. That's what people thought was the content that was necessary to get the medium to popular consciousness. And I didn't think that was the case. I thought that early mediums should be messed around with and do random things with and take bold steps with and try to do nonlinear weird 
stuff that doesn't work in existing mediums. That's how you test the boundaries of a new medium. So that's what we were attempting to do with the Jester's Tale. So it wasn't so easy to sell, honestly. It wasn't so easy to understand as a concept, but I think that is what made the project more compelling. And the reason I could do that was because Terminal 3 had been successful enough where we had raised money for a second project without the financiers caring about what the project or the content of it was. So I could just take more bold steps with it. So it was a weird piece. I, I still think about it sometimes. We some, did some bizarre things in it. Can you share um, a little bit about it? Yeah, so it, it was framed as a reverse Turing test or a reverse CAPTCHA almost. So you start the experience and it's marketed as a bedtime story. But when you start it, it gives you a CAPTCHA test. So it says, you know, say you're not a robot. We used voice recognition to trigger that pop-up. And then it says, use your thumb to, you know, say you're not a robot again with your thumb. And so we were doing kind of these weird things with it. And then the CAPTCHA test just never ends. It keeps becoming more and more bizarre. And suddenly these holograms show up and they're trying to manipulate you emotionally. There is this kid who's sitting on a bed with a bunch of rats. We had a physical bed that the kid's hologram was on and you're talking to the kid and suddenly the kid becomes the CAPTCHA test. And so it's switching between these really bizarre scenes. And towards the end, we were doing this thing where the real kid whose hologram we had made would be sitting inside the physical wall. We would open this panel and there was a cage inside the wall in which the kid was sitting. And the last moment was you confront the physical child and you're still looking through the AR headset. So for a split second, you're not sure if it's a hologram or a physical child, or at least that was the concept. And just in order to do that, just the logistics were we had to look into child labor laws in Utah and had to get three kids and get them the same haircuts and three doppelganger kids that were rotating their shifts sitting in the wall. It was a really bizarre thing. And honestly, Sundance, shout out to them for taking the risk because the project wasn't done till the day it came till the festival started. Mm. In fact, we missed press hours because it wasn't ready. It wasn't working. We were staying up all night behind the booth trying to just make sure things work. But it was a bizarre attempt and was done really quickly. Mm. So it didn't work a lot of the time. But when it did, I think it really did open people's imagination of what is possible in the medium. And the Magic Leap had just come out. So we got tons of press and critical acclaim out of that project, although it was only displayed once. I also remember at the time you were talking about, I think this was 2019, and you were talking about why Billie Eilish is popular among young people. It's like Mm -hmm. there's this honesty about the darkness in the zeitgeist, which I see that in in what you're building in Jadu as well. But even thinking back to that time, you weren't really, I mean, you would see horror pieces. Like you'd see people do things that were outright meant to fit into an existing lineage of horror. But you were actually leaning into the immersive capacities of this deeply weird strain that seemed to mirror what was happening in culture that wasn't being talked about. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, it's really, uh, as I was saying, a response to the fact that everything that was happening in the medium was so clean cut. And, you know, there was this clear distinction between people that make content and people that make technology. And it felt like a lot of the content that was being built was being built by people that make technology. And the people that make content were stuck making 360 videos or other forms of immersive that were less technically challenging to produce. Um, And we thought that we were right at the center of it all because we were leading with the technology. Um, You know, we were developing ourselves and we were, 
you know, downloading the SDKs and messing around with things and trying to see what the possibilities are and just constantly trying to overdo it, being like, let's also add in voice, let's also add in gestures, let's, you know, add in as much as we can and then tie it up with this, you know, conceptual frame. And the things we wa we wanted to say weren't so clean cut and, you know, organized, honestly, even in, in terms of storytelling, we didn't have the c capability to build a lot of great 3D models or asset creation. We weren't 3D modeling people and we didn't have resources to hire. So we were relying a lot on capture, which also was very glitchy and dirty and dark just by nature of it. So we were just leaning in on it and also leaning in to our own influences. And that was the result. The nice thing is we were in college. We were like 19, 20. So we didn't have to cosplay as young people trying to make work <laughs> that relates to young people. We just were doing things that we found interesting. Which was really rare at the time. Yeah. Well, that brings us to Jadu. Because there's this transition moment. Obviously, I've heard you talk elsewhere about how Jadu was always this germ in your mind. But at the time, OneRick was a, the studio that you were operating under. And then there's this kind of handoff where Jadu comes to be the main focus. Yeah. yeah so, you know, the word Jadu means magic in Urdu. And when I started working in AR, it was early enough that I felt like I could be as ambitious as possible. And I wanted to build, you know, whatever the predominant content platform would be for AR. Now, I didn't know what that meant or what shape that would take, but it was just as a concept, it existed. And the Jadu logo I was scribbling in my notebook, like just years before it actually started to happen. And one Rick was, you know, we took the form of a studio. And the reason of taking the form of a studio was because first of all, me and Jack and a couple other people that were working with us, we were in college. So we, we didn't feel like we were ready to take on something that was substantial and a product, something that would develop, would take years to develop fully. So we wanted to do a lot of shorter sprints, like three months production timelines for a project that goes to a festival. So push ourselves, try to do a lot in a short amount of time, get some gratification out of a release and just iterate, do a couple cycles of that. So when finally we graduated, um, it made sense that it was time to now take on a more full project that we could realize. And some of the factors that went into Jadu starting to take the form that it was taking was one, we had realized that we couldn't work on headsets anymore, which was a real shame because we really, the whole thing with AR for us was headsets. We thought AR headsets were incredibly compelling. And we thought that using a flat rectangle on your palm is not you know, how people will interact with technology in the long term. Um, but it Do become, you still believe that, by the way? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, in the long term, you mm -hmm. know. Yeah. Um, however, right now, phones are how we interact. It's a, it's a medium that is has matured a lot. You mm -hmm. know, all iPhones look the same now, you know, and people complain about it. I love it. I think it's like it's been perfected. It's you, you can add incremental adjustments to it, but it's really in a good place right now. Mm. Um, headsets are going to take some time. So what we realized was in order for new mediums to develop, you need to build for audiences. Mm. You can't just work in a lab on the best form of the technology forever. You, you'd rather work with kind of the good enough version of the technology, but at least have an audience that's interacting with it that gets you further. So that was one of the key thesis with Jadu. And the other thing was that we were realizing we were working on the HoloLens and Microsoft honestly did not care about content and creativity and entertainment. 
they had some pieces they would showcase in the events, but they realistically, they didn't care about it because they treated it as an enterprise product. Mm. So when the Magic Leap came out, I was very excited because their whole thing was, this is a creator-oriented headset. And so we were creators and we built something on it really quickly. We were mid-production, we pivoted to the Magic Leap. It was really challenging. A lot of things that were necessary to make uh, a gesture scale didn't exist yet. They couldn't play volumetric footage, for example. We had to commission a custom plugin and like do a lot of things to get it to work. But we did it because we wanted to make a mark on the headset that was for creatives. And we did. We launched a project, got into Sundance, got great press, got better press than a lot of Magically projects that were Sundance. <laughs> and they didn't end up putting it on their platform. We were in conversation with them for quite some time. It went up to the CEO. And they decided not to because the reasoning I got was because the subject matter was just too niche or not family friendly enough, something along those lines. And I realized that we need more control over how we publish stuff. We can't publish on these emerging platforms that are not ready to take risks with content. So we wanted to build our own platform on mobile and we wanted to do a project that we could iterate on for long periods of time because doing something for three months, launching it, and then kind of knowing the shortcomings, but not really having any financial or other motivations to fix them was just not the right setup. We knew iteration was necessary. So that was kind of the founding of Jadu. Yeah. You're, you're causing me to think about one, I think, idiosyncratic piece of the XR puzzle earlier on is that there was a lot of energy around it because a lot of big companies wanted to not miss this wave the way they had missed the mobile wave but mm -hmm. that also meant that there was very little um like indie participation that wasn't in some way funded by those big companies or smaller big companies you know studios and things like that which nobody was outright censoring content but it had i think there were ways in which it had a quieting effect on certain types of content that didn't really fit in comfortable buckets Absolutely. And I think you can see it very clearly. If you look at the content that came out on VR headsets during 2017, 18, 19, you can kind of see, okay, this is the era when Verizon is funding. This is the era when Oculus is funding stuff. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you can see content formats and subject matter shift around based on what kind of funding was going into the space. And AR was getting none of it anyway, for the most part. You know, obviously like we had Riot and Jake who ended up with us like they took you know a bet on us which was awesome we got to make you know the early experimental crazy stuff that we got to build but another thing that was happening with ar there was indie participation but it was on face filters there was tons of interest from like creatives building face filters for instagram TikTok, snapchat that has been the case for the last five six seven years now but personally i think that it's been somewhat detrimental, not entirely detrimental, but aspects of it have been detrimental to the space because indie creatives who could have worked with more flushed out game engines and produced stuff that was really compelling that they owned ended up building filters for these platforms using tools that were really simplified in exchange for followers, really. Like there was a time period where you could make filters on Instagram and get hundreds of thousands of followers because there weren't that many filters on Instagram and your name would pop up next to the filter and people would go follow you. 
And so many people went in on that wave that I think that they were distracted from the possibilities of working on Unreal or Unity and actually building more flushed out AR projects. Mm. Do you think that had an impact, that, that era of filters being the main access point for augmented reality? Do you think that impacted what the public thought augmented, uh, augmented reality was? Yeah, for sure. I think it has had a similar effect to what Google Cardboard and 360 Video did for VR. You know, when people knew, people heard about what VR was, but they never experienced it till the New York Times shipped a bunch of Google Cardboards everywhere. And then people were plugging in their phones into a cardboard box, watching 360 videos that didn't have six degrees of freedom. They were in a sphere and they were then getting motion sick and this and that. And that just put a taste in people's mouth of what VR is supposed to be, which wasn't very accurate based on what actual sixed off VR can do. And I think a similar thing has happened with AR, a combination of face filters, where face filters are not designed for you to have a spatial experience. They're designed for you to record a 2D video. And Pokemon Go, where it was popularized as an AR game, but the predominant mechanic that you use in the game is geolocation based. The actual AR was quite limited. You're throwing a ball and trying to catch your Pokemon and it felt relatively flat when it first came out. And that was how a lot of people experienced AR. And the third bucket was basically marketing activations on web, right? Like a lot of um, AR marketing projects that were also really quickly made, really quickly pushed out by agencies, no iteration, just whatever random novel mechanic that came up, just ship it. And between those three buckets, I think AR on mobile developed kind of a stigma where people feel like mobile AR can never be compelling enough and headsets have to be popularized before AR becomes like a thing. I don't believe that's the case. I think mobile AR should have another large moment before headsets headsets are still a bit far out. Mm. Yeah. You've talked about this idea of like a ghostly presence. And I think that one of your approaches as an artist and storyteller that I'm seeing translate into your work in Jadu is really activating the space that you're in. Now that like, unlike Pokemon Go, which is geolocated, you have to partake at this place that you've been told to go, yeah. which induces a certain degree of you know control on the part of the game maker and et cetera, et cetera. You're, you've taken the opposite approach with Jadu, but also with Terminal 3, with Jester's Tale, where you're trying to actually more deeply immerse people in the, the, whatever physical space they're in. Absolutely. I think the one common thread in all of our work, it used to be volumetrics, which, you know, volumetrics for people that are not familiar is a technique where you can use a lot of cameras or at least use some depth cameras to record, um, you know, a person in 3D as a moving video. And we were doing tons of that, that, you know, Jester's Tale and Terminal 3 and the early iterations of Jolly were all volumetric video. And I thought that that was going to be the case forever because that was one of our strengths. Um, but at some point we were, you know, running into limitations with how interactive volumetric video can be and how much effort that takes. Um, so we shifted to what we're doing now where you have 3D models of characters that you're interacting with. But the thing that that ended up doing was we were really familiar with just human figures and characters in, in AR. And that became a big differentiator for us because generally AR is considered to be a first person medium. You know, most, most AR is you're the player, you're interacting with your surroundings. You don't need another character in the middle of it to, you know, facilitate. 
In our case, we did add these avatars in the middle that you're then controlling. So AR becomes a third person medium in, in that scenario, which makes it a lot more digestible, in my opinion. You know, you can sit down and move your avatar around. You know, you don't have to be physically moving all the time, which is generally, you know, cool and novel, but exhausting. And people don't want to do that all the time. So this gives you that optionality. And then it also adds this concept of the ghostly presence, which is something I've felt for a long time that was a strong thing about AR, was you can have an AR experience, you can have a person in your room that you're seeing through your phone, but it's still your room. You're perceiving it as your room. So even when you're not looking at it from your phone, it feels like that person was in this space earlier. And that's a really unique thing that VR and other mediums can never accomplish is give spatial presence to another human being in your space and for you to feel like that presence is lingering after you're done with the experience. I mean, and that literally changes your sense of that physical reality. It's, yeah. it, it, it stays with you. Absolutely. When you think about that first moment of Jadu where you had holograms of performers and it was designed for social video, I, I have two questions. One is around, I remember watching you direct um, at Metastage and the sort of weird considerations that you have to make when you're directing somebody for volumetric capture. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you feel like that laid a foundation for where you've landed with Jadu. And then also how you feel about those holograms and if you see any kind of future life for that style of social video, even though it's not where you're prioritizing your focus right now. Mm -hmm. I love those holograms. We have so many of them. We're storing raw data and cold storage from those holograms. We ended up working with like Serena Williams and Lil Nas X, and we have holograms of them. We built tons of great capture with 106 cameras, um, but also like artists like Bia and Omar Apollo and artists that have since really blown up and significant audiences. And we caught them when, you know, that they were just bubbling up. And I think we have some great footage from that time that over time would be interesting for a lot of people. So we want to bring it back in some form, even within Jadu, just creating opportunities for it. It's not going to happen in the near future because that's probably very confusing for our audience. We want to establish the scene first. Um, but I definitely think that they will have uh, those kinds of clips will have a life later on, even for us. But absolutely, you know, a recording for volumetric kind of established me as an AR director because like initially the term director just, you know, didn't, I didn't feel like a director. I didn't go to school for any kind of direction. It's just film terms were being thrust upon us because we were going to film festivals. But when we started doing volumetric recordings was when I started feeling like a director because you're on set and there's someone and you're telling them what to do. And very quickly we realized that certain things work, certain things don't. Part of it were the limitations of the capture itself. Like for example, for Justice Tale, we recorded this kid. And when we recorded the kid, he had to be in a huge green screen room alone and give a moving performance while talking to the viewer who wasn't even there looking mm. like at nothing, right? And it was really hard for him to deliver that. So we ended up hiring what we called an interactor, where we hired an actor to play the viewer that we removed in post just so the kid can have like someone to bounce energy off, right? So there are a lot of those kinds of techniques that were just tried for the first time just because the medium that we were building for was brand new. And I think a lot of that way of thinking um, translates over to what we're doing now because we're not just bringing the traditional gaming approach. 
we have always had an intuition for these considerations of AR that we can face the medium dead on versus shying away from its challenges. Because a lot of people do that as, okay, we're making an AR experience, but ah, there are chairs here and oh, there's a wall. I'm like, what do we do? Let's just put it all on the table and make it small. You know what I mean? It solves the problems, but it doesn't face them. It doesn't create new interactions and it doesn't embrace the medium in the way that we try to. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so before we get to the current state of Jadu, there's a, a middle phase. It, it seems that you've really followed different audiences and, and communities and learned from them as you've been developing what Jadu has ultimately become. But between the social video moment and the current mobile game moment, or mobile is maybe the wrong word, mobile AR game moment, there was this moment where you built community in Web3. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about one, what the Web3 strategy was, and two, how you're thinking about it now with this more broad-focused game on the way. Yeah. We've never had too much of a preconceived notion about what the end product is like in, in a longer span of time. We've always done the best we can with the resources we have at our disposal while keeping the core the same, which is we're facing AR and we're creating new interactions in AR, ideally for a large number of people and ideally in a way that builds on top of itself versus restarting every three months. That's the foundation. Now, the result of that uh, equation has been different at different times. So we were doing holograms earlier with music. The reason for that was because the pandemic had started. We knew we could do volumetric clips but we couldn't do volumetric clips that were really long because that was really heavy. So we had to do short volumetric clips in the middle of the pandemic and TikTok was blowing up and musicians weren't touring. So we found a unique opportunity there to work with musicians, record short clips that could be used in TikTok videos as holograms. It made, made a lot of sense. That got us far. It got us out in the world. We had an app. People were using it. We got to around 100,000 uh, downloads on that app. There were moments when it was really trending. There were millions of views on videos that were emerging out of that. But it wasn't very clear how we were going to monetize or where this was going to go long term. It's expensive to record holograms. It's not compelling enough for people to pay for it. It was enough to get us going. And this was around the time that Web3 and NFTs were really just starting to pop up. And, you know, there was a skepticism from all kinds of groups um, around the technology. And I was um, parallel to a lot of people that were working um, in NFTs, that people that had early drops. And what I was starting to realize was that all the things people were saying about, oh, you, you make your art, you put it out there, you can earn commission on it long term. And it's not just a technological concept. It's an idea. It's like you're saying that in this space, we value artists and we want you to gain commission out of your thing in a long span of time. We think that's a better model than what exists currently. That was compelling. You know, that made sense to me, you know. So because it made sense, we followed it a bit. And I had directed the only music video I've directed so far for Pussy Riot. And we had it. We were ready to release it. We'd spent a bunch of money making it. We knew it was not going to make any money. It was just purely because we wanted to show off the technology and we wanted to make something cool with Nadia, who's a good friend of mine. And very last minute, we decided to release it as an NFT. And it sold for, I don't even know the exact amount anymore because it was a ridiculous, like, few hundred thousand dollars. And on YouTube, it made $50. 
And suddenly I was like, okay, there is an emerging space. They think about things differently. They're asking the right questions. We are an emerging platform. We're an emerging medium that's not found its form of monetization yet. This could be compelling for us. And we could differentiate from the Niantics and Snapchats of the world because they won't take this risk. So we said, we're going to do AR and Web3. And that was a really bold move on our part. It was a big pivot. But we went in on, on it and we released jetpacks that were our early collection of assets that you can use in AR that you own that also represent your interest in the medium. And you can use it with other avatars that are interoperable. And you can be part of a community that also has these this shared interest in this company. And we sold around $400,000 worth of jetpacks in seconds. And that was the most significant financial event we had had in the history of our work, of all the years working in AR, of displaying stuff and shipping stuff and raising money and building projects. Suddenly we had made $400,000 in seconds, you know? So based on that, we were like, okay, this is, this is the direction for us. And the surprising part about it was the community because I knew that, yeah, you have a community, people buy your assets and then they rally behind you. But I didn't realize how insane it would be in practice because suddenly there are all these people that own these assets that showed up in our Discord and we're like, we're here, we're here every day. We're going to show up every day. We're going to make this thing a thing. And I went from having like a small team to now thousands of people that were absolutely cheering for us. And that's something that we maintained for a long period of time. We released multiple collections and over time we did over $30 million in volume on our assets and ended up raising a seed round and then eventually a series A round that a lot of the credibility, like the investors gave us money because they wanted to invest in the team and AR as a technology, not necessarily Web3 as a technology, mm. but the support we were getting from our audience was critical in us hitting those milestones. So that's why we went in it. And I think we really benefited a lot from it. And we also learned a lot from it in terms of having a community, building a product that is shaped with the interests of thousands of people that really want to see it succeed. But the reason we didn't continue going in it as strongly as we were initially planning on was because of a bunch of things that have happened over the last year. Obviously, volume and interest went down tremendously. The stigma around Web3 in popular culture, as we're, I don't even need to say anything about that, and just generally, the space just didn't go in the direction I was hoping for. I really thought that we were getting to a point where people interested in new technology and building new things are going to come into this. And there were so many artists and creatives that had such compelling ideas about where this could go. But it did go downhill. Like It did just end up being a space with tons of scams and people taking advantage of each other all over the place. So many people I knew lost so much, not because of assets going down, but because of just hacks and this and that. The user experience was horrible. Getting a new person to understand how to even get a wallet to engage with this stuff was just such a large hurdle. And we were so deep in development and we were building something that was unique for everyone that it felt like Web3 was actually becoming a, you know, a hindrance in onboarding people versus you know something that was a benefit. So we ended up removing wallet logins. We ended up making a game that was something people, you know, can play without having any association with Web3 or having any assets. But we also did it in a way where 
the assets that people did purchase early on with us, they do work in the game and we have intentions and plans for them over time. But what's important for us right now is that we have a few years of runway and during this time, either we're going to build a very successful AR game or not. If we build a very successful AR game, we have a lot of tools and leverage to bring value to the team and the investors and also people that engage with us as early supporters purchasing NFTs. We will have leverage to support that without relying purely on whether Web3 as a space succeeds or not. And the other scenario is we only focus on a small audience that we try to appeal and pander to them and then hurt our chances of actually having something that is sustainable and large and successful and has an impact. Mm. Yeah. There's a quote that I was thinking of in preparing for this interview. It's actually from Steve Jobs, which I know is a, is a cliche, especially so because our friend Gabo Aurora is is imagining you as the Steve Jobs of this industry, but it hits on this, this way in which you not only segued out of really focusing on Web3, but have journeyed as you've developed Jadu. People think focus means saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on, but that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that there are. You have to pick carefully. I'm actually as proud of the things we haven't done as the things I have done. Innovation is saying no to a thousand things. Absolutely. We've never done more than one thing ever, you know, and like the whole thesis of going into building a product and not going by an agency or studio model was that we had to do one thing and just, you know, give ourselves a setup where we can just iterate on it. And that's really why we're moving into what we're moving into now, which is building an AR fighting game. Because when people think of the metaverse, both in terms of VR and AR, they have this kind of generalized vision of a social space where many things take place. And when everyone's trying to build some kind of generalized thing, nothing specific emerges. So we learned this roughly a year ago and we said, you know what, we have a setup. We have these avatars that you control. It's a third person game. We're building a multiplayer functionality, so remote multiplayer. What should these characters do when they're with each other? What's one thing they can do? And what's the best thing they can do that people will understand that'll give them an intense experience and just get them into it? And we thought fighting was the way to go. So we are now building an AR fighting game, which doesn't sound as grandiose as we're building the AR metaverse. It doesn't sound um, as large of a concept, it sounds kind of small. It's like, okay, it's like, it's a contained mobile game. That's not that big of a deal. But I think this contained structure allows us to just do a really good job at it. And I feel like that's something that's been missing in AR is no one's just grabbed a basic concept and just gone deep enough with it and have, you know, polish it enough, give it story, give it consistency, develop it over a longer period of time. So I, I think we're really lucky that we're getting to do that right now. Yeah, I mean, the last big reference of AR gaming that anybody points to is Pokemon Go and however much anybody respectively likes or dislikes that, they really nailed the geolocation function. And that, of course, was explosively popular and continues to be popular to this day. Was there a particular moment that you remember deciding to do a fighting game? Or was it the result of conversations over the course of days or weeks or months? Yeah, it, it was something that started bubbling up. And initially, you're just throwing random ideas with your team and people you meet and just seeing what sticks, what people kind of respond to. 
And I started bringing up fighting as a mechanic worth trying out because it's such a simple, people want it eventually. I know there's going to be an AR fighting game one day. And so when I started bringing it up with some people on the team, there was some skepticism because on once again, we didn't really have an idea of what we were building at this time. There were pieces and there were some mechanics, but the overall thing was not quite there. And people, everyone on the team had their own version in their heads of what this could become. And I think some people thought maybe like a Tamagotchi style thing or people still had maps in their mind. So fighting was a, a weird one. And also there was a lot of skepticism because fighting games are a very particular thing that very particular type of people usually indulge in. And they're very developed now. So it's actually hard to build something that's an AR fighting game that's novel. And the way I started selling my team on it was like, imagine all the things we can do. It's in your space. Imagine when you get close, you can like freeze frame it and do some crazy thing. I was just coming up with all these novel mechanics. And it's funny because we were like, okay, let's build a quick prototype. So we built a pro prototype in two weeks and shipped it in beta to our Discord audience. And this was the first time there was somewhat of a loop. There was something to do, you know, and people played a lot. Like we had, we, we did a thing over Christmas, last Christmas, where we had some cash prizes and whatnot. And you just had to play for two weeks and people were playing six hours a day. Like top people were just playing this basic prototype we built in two weeks a lot. So we felt like there was something here, something was starting to happen. And then while starting this year, we said, you know what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to rebrand into an AR fighting game and just make that and make it really good. Um, so we really doubled down on it. And it's funny because the mechanics initially were like going to do all these crazy novel things ended up actually being really simple. You press a button and it punches. You press another button, kicks, and you press them a bunch, you get some combos and you get some finishers. And I think that's enough. You don't need some crazy gestures and weird things happening in order for this to be compelling. It's already an AR. It's already compelling. There are already a lot of novel things happening. So what we needed was actually just the quickest inputs possible and the simplest mechanics possible. And I think we've landed in a really nice place with it. Mm. Do you see yourself in the lineage of... Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, Tekken, Smash. There's a long history of very successful fighting games across different platforms. This is, of course, entering into a new reality, somewhat literally. But do you see yourself as extending those lineages, or are you imagining it more as like a hard fork into a different direction? I think we are, whether we like it or not, we are now part of that lineage, which is not something I imagined or expected. And that was the case with the film festival circuit. That wasn't a lineage I thought we would be interfacing with. And same goes for music and holograms. Like we injected ourselves in these different places and had to level up to, you know, exist in that lineage. Because with something like AR, you, there are a lot of intersecting lineages and that's just going to be the case. And as someone building in it, you kind of have to be somewhat aware of a lot of them in order to do it justice and do a good job. So this year for me has been a crash course in fighting games, you know, <laughs> like I'd played, you know, Street Fighter and Tekken as a kid in arcades in Pakistan. That was a big thing. You know, we had arcades that people would just go in and just play a lot of Tekken. In fact, the Tekken scene in Pakistan, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the world champion right now for the last four years in a row, the Tekken world champion is a Pakistani kid. Oh, I had no idea. Who we're working with. 
Wow. So yeah, it, it's just we're making a fighting game. The best fighting game players in the world are Pakistanis right now, and the the way that happened is also really weird because they were just playing in home built cabinet arcade systems in Pakistan without any international exposure. So the whole competitive scene was run by Japanese and Korean players. And then a couple of years ago, Arsalan Ash um, got a visa, and I they sent him to one of the big tournaments, and he just destroyed everyone and like his technique was brand new he like uses fingers like this to hit the buttons and everything and everyone was just completely taken aback and then they realized it's not just this one guy there's a whole scene that's not touched the global stage yet so i'm very proud that that's like a weird thing that is in my background that's why we started working with arsalan he's been advising on our gameplay mechanics and that's awesome talking to the tekken world champion four years in a row now so yes, like I've had to learn a lot in order to learn about fighting games and just analyze Tekken fights and Street Fighter fights and King of Fighter fights and like how many punches do people land in a fight? Like what's the how many blocks take place and just compare our setup and tweak our setup throughout all of this. We've redone our entire combat system so many times now. Our animation team has grown a lot, learned a lot, and me personally, we've been doing a lot of work where we bring in consultants. So we don't actually have an in-house game designer at the moment. I do a lot of it. The animation gameplay teams obviously contribute a lot. But generally, we do work with a lot of consultants. We bring someone on who is an expert, let's say, in fighting games or free-to-play games. And we just do sessions with them on a weekly basis where I workshop ideas with them, bring them concepts. They give me best practices. We tweak things for what we think will work best. So it's an incredibly hands-on process. And I'm, I feel very lucky. Like I... I I feel like I have a really nice job where I get to, every time we pivot, I get to learn a lot about a certain lineage and just quickly not only understand how things have been done, but contribute something new. And it's easy to contribute something new because our starting off point is a new medium that we have been working on for a long time. Yeah. yeah. What are some of those? Like, obviously, it's an AR. That's a new contribution. But one level in with the mechanics, with the creative development concept, et cetera. What are some of the new contributions you're imagining Jadu sort of logging in this, in this history? Yeah. I mean, you know, on the AR level, it's what I said, third person, right? Like that's one thing. Then a deeper level, you get to remote multiplayer, which is something we're really proud of. We had this idea for a long time and early this year, we weren't sure if we would get it working, but we were just operating under the assumption that we somehow will. And we did. And it feels great. So when people think of multiplayer in AR, traditionally they think of local multiplayer where both people are in the same place and they're having a match together, which is technically quite challenging to get two sessions to sync up in a local space. So what we did was remote multiplayer because we think that people want to play more with people that aren't physically next to them. Because if you're physically together, you should just fight at that point, you know what I mean, in real life versus <laughs> in AR. So the remote multiplayer setup means that both people see each other's avatars in their respective locations. And then the third piece is the combat itself, which is where we get into the lineage of the fighting games. What we're doing is not as like uh, extensive and quick and frame data oriented as most console and PC fighting games like Tekken, but it's also not as simplified as most mobile fighting games or most mobile games in general where you just have one button you're smashing again and again or the mechanics are really simplified in our case 
you have we have basically multiple action buttons there is a punch a kick a projectile or a special and and a shield so that we, we tried a lot of formats we had five button format six button formats we've landed on this kind of four button format with three attack buttons and one shield and for different characters there will be different things those buttons can do like a grappler would use a special button for throws whereas an all-rounder would use it for projectiles things along those lines and you can tap them multiple times to get two combos and there's a sliding mechanic we've been testing that we really like where you can slide from one button to the other which is Mm. something smartphone screens are good for versus controllers you wouldn't want to do that sliding feels great with some haptics so those are some of the things that we've been working with on top of it a big part of ar is like you got to frame your fight which is a big challenge because in most fighting games you're constantly seeing both players on the screen 100 percent of the time there's no moment where someone's off screen whereas in this case players can go off screen you have to constantly be moving and adjusting your physical position in order to make sure the combat is taking place in a comfortable distance from you which initially i think a lot of people get a bit turned off by they're like oh what where the character is going i have to constantly keep track of them that's that sounds exhausting so we've had to do a lot to minimize that lock the characters to each other make attacks land more easily make the buttons more exciting so just with a bunch of taps you can get to specials so compensate for that because that is a big part of ar like you do have a spatial understanding of your fight which is the whole point of what we're trying to achieve and we're also doing things like using your physical surroundings which is hard in multiplayer but with the single pair modes that we're developing we're going to do a lot more of that where you can smash someone into a wall or climb on a table and jump off it with your avatar, things, things along those lines. And what would make somebody, like when you're thinking about the progression of a player in their own arc as, yeah, as, as a player of this game, what skills or techniques elevate them to like expert status? Like, is it that they're able to, like I'm thinking of, you know, with Mortal Kombat, it's like being able to do like really like funny fatalities. Yeah. Like, or what are the things like that that are the yeah the the red meat for for the experts? Yeah, so it's shifting right now because we're still tweaking and building and learning. In the more initial iterations, we had leaderboards and we have people that play a lot. So like a lot of grinding was actually a big part of being on the top of the leaderboard and understanding the meta because the game was always broken well in beta like every time you push to build there is some button you can spam too much and it becomes an advantage so when people are playing they're trying to find what that is and every time we did tournaments someone would figure out okay the projectile button spamming too much or the light kick you can just keep going on it and the other person can't do anything we've been fixing a lot of that stuff i think now we're at a place where it's a lot more balanced so finding that meta and grinding was a big part of getting to be on top of the leaderboard I think that's going to shift with this release where we've added rankings and things like that that don't require playing a lot, but they require just like winning and playing a lot with high ranked players and then being able to defeat them. So a big part of it is understanding the controls. I think a big aspect of it is also going to be just content creation in general, people recording videos of their fights and whoever records more compelling videos and more compelling context, I think would get some gratification from sharing in the community and social media and whatnot. And going into next year, we're introducing a lot more characters. And with the characters, we have single player and campaigns, which is something we're going to be doubling down on. Because initially, when we started building this, the idea was how do you get to 
a, a substantial amount of content in the quickest amount of time. And PVP was the way to do it because ta- building a lot of campaigns and story takes time. So we thought if we just build a quick setup where people can fight each other and give them tools to customize their character, there's suddenly a lot, a lot of content because you could go into PVP, match up with random people and have a new experience every time. But now we're at a point where that's established and we can actually flush out these single player campaigns where you fight as a character, you go through some story arcs, you have a bunch of fights, you're trying to rescue the next character, you get to the next character, now you can play as the next character, then you can play as both the old character and the next character together in certain scenarios. And so a lot of possibilities and variations start to emerge there. And that's when people can start to collect certain items and build their character and indulge in the lore and all those kinds of aspects start to become more meaningful. Mm. Yeah. You reference characters, and obviously storytelling isn't the first thing that comes to mind when people think of fighter games, but of course there's a lot of story that's imbued, particularly in Manifest, and in the characters, and Manifest in a way that's in, in large part, or rather Manifest in a way that's in many cases more crucial because you have such, you have such limited time to really communicate the story of that character in the gameplay context. You don't have an open world and dialogue and people walking around to, to, to give the player a sense of who that character is. Walk me through a little bit of that storytelling and concepting process. Yeah. Story has been like a really weird part of our process over the last year or so, because on one hand, story was always really critical, right? Like we started with short form stories that we told in film festivals. So it was a really important thing to us. It was one of our strengths. And a lot of people in the team wanted to do stuff that was storytelling heavy. So when we started the fighting game, I think a lot of people were slightly turned off because the possibilities for story were slightly more limited. And I was also a bit allergic to going too deep into story for the last year. Mm. And part of the reason was because every time we built out more elaborate world building, Mac, who does our world building, every time we would build out some axioms and established kind of a scene, we would pivot. <laughs> and suddenly it would be retrofitting and trying to make sense of how the story is going to operate in the new setup. So we always like kept it open-ended enough where there were universal ideas that we could toy with but not commit too much. So it was kind of an awkward place for story. And that goes for characters as well because we were building a fighting game and we started building new characters. But at the same time, we were not committed enough to the fighting game where we still wanted to keep the optionality open that if we pivot again, the characters could work in a lot of contexts. So we ended up building characters that were relatively like I'd say relatively generic in the sense that we wanted our users to put themselves as the characters where you can actually customize your character and build it out and get new shoes for it, not get new gloves for it, hair, this and that. And that's what we're shipping right now. And I'm really proud of it. I love our character creator. It's we've, I like go in and just mess with it because it feels so good. You know, we have an audio track playing in the background. Every time you even swipe on the character, the audio like shuffles around, which is the kind of attention to detail that most mobile games usually don't get to, but we were adding that kind of polish in every aspect. So the character creator is really exciting and you get to build your own character and we're doing a lot of item drops and bundles and things that you're getting for your character. That's like an exciting thing that we want to keep developing. But now that we're more committed to fighting, we are now also creating fighting game 
oriented characters, where now story is coming into play more significantly. So we have new characters we're going to be releasing early next year, honestly, just in three or four months, where those characters are global. They're from a lot of different parts of the world. They're have a lot of story and background imbued in them, and you get to explore them through these campaigns that you go on. And the, the kind of process we're using for these characters is, first of all, we want them to be gritty and grounded in reality. You know, We're not trying to make them so fantastical that it's kind of retreatist. It's not, it's not fantasy, you know, or it's not, it's not smash. You know what I mean? Like it is, and it's also not as indulgent as, let's say, a Mortal Kombat, where the violence and like the craziest possible fatalities is what makes the game exciting. In our case, we want to keep it like we want you to face these characters and their reality head on in an almost realistic manner. And so that's one of the things that we're following with the characters. And we want them to be global. We want them to reflect what's happening globally in terms of like, you know, Bollywood's massive now, K-pop's huge now, reggaeton's huge now. We're not living in kind of Hollywood-only world anymore. And we want the characters to not just be some kind of token characters, but actually be super compelling and representative of all these things that are taking place in the world. And that's actually a big reason why our team is incredibly global. We have, we're covering around 15 nationalities within like our 40 person team, which is an expensive thing to run. We have to pay taxes in all these countries and all kinds of paperwork and logistics that go into running it. But we think it's worth it because the end product then reflects that. It's funny because it, in this subtle way, even though somebody might look at your career and say, oh, Terminal 3 is Asit's most political work, what you're describing has a definite political angle to it. Absolutely. I think the most political thing in a weird way is like the thing that has the largest impact, reaches a lot of people and actually affects a lot of people's lives. And what we're trying to establish now is something that young people that are just starting off getting into things that they like and care about, giving them a new medium to engage with each other on. I'm really proud of the fact that this is a, an immersive spatial kind of experience where you, you meet someone on Discord and you're, you you find some friends on the internet and you text them and see their videos and photos. And But in this case, you feel their presence in a space, in your room, in your world. And I think that that's really powerful. And being able to do that with characters that are coming from all over the world and the setup that we're positioning ourselves for, fighting itself is like, it's political. People punch and kick and scream for the things that make them punch and kick and scream in the real world. And like, we're leaning in on those things. We're leaning in on the angst that emerges from the, the political state of our planet. And so I think that just doing a piece that works for white liberal audiences in a film festival setting is, I believe, not as political as something that actually reaches a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds and like allows them to mix and merge with each other around something that is compelling and is directly related to the future of where things are heading. Mm. Yeah. And young people are often, not to speak for all young people all over the world, but young people often have much less agency than adults. And as a function of that, spend more time in a routine set of spaces, often their room. And what you're doing is kind of capturing some of the 
like what made going to the arcade special, you referenced the arcade in Tekken, it, 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 it resurrects that social component in space, but instead of it being in a separate space somewhere else in the world, it's in a space that's very special to you, presumably. Yeah, exactly. With Adjuster's Tale, this was a big concept. It was framed in a bedroom. So what we were trying to accomplish was that if you see a really insane story take place on your bed, you're likely to dream about it, you know? And we're like, how do we get into people's dream with content? The art kind of gives you additional tools of increasing the likelihood that that happens. And I think that's the case here as well. People playing in their familiar spaces and seeing unfamiliar things and presence of other people from other parts of the world showing up in familiar places. I think that that's really powerful and gets into people's psyche for sure. Have you experienced dream invasion have i dreamed in ar <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> can you share any of that of, of any moments where that happened or any like anecdotes no honestly like more recently my my dreams are not you know i don't remember them because mm. there's so much going on work-wise that we're just really kind of tunnel vision into just the day-to-day of making things happen so i i don't even as soon as i wake up my brain automatically kind of like okay, what are things that have happened in Tokyo last night and then all other parts of the world that our team is uh, situated in? So I get fully immersed in it directly. It's been a long time since I've been remembering my dreams. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope after the launch, I'll have some time <laughs> to sleep and have some, some uh, deeper dreams. Speaking of your team, it seems to me you're describing a context for Jadu where you've got team members all over the world. You've also been on this ride as a company. Talk to me about the that experience as somebody leading a startup with, you know, now 40 or 50 people and bringing them on this journey. And because I I think one thing that that often gets discounted in these discussions is how brutally difficult running a startup is of any kind, but then much less one you're describing that is attempting to be global, attempting to operate in a totally new or relatively new medium. So I'd love to hear a little bit of your perspective on that. Yeah, I I think that that aspect of it has been one of the most significant learning experiences for me over the last year and a half is just forming a team and relying on a team to get the job done, you know, because it's an interesting push and pull of how much agency do you give people? How much do you trust people right off the bat? How much do you step away from things that you feel like you've been an integral part of developing and let other people fill those shoes? We hired a lot last year. You know, we raised a lot of money really quickly. It was a very euphoric market where it felt like the only limitation was talent and not resources. And we got the team up to around 50 towards the end of last year and very quickly realized that that was a mistake because a lot of roles we filled were either roles that weren't actually needed, that were actually now being a deterrent to us moving quick, and other roles that just we didn't hire good for and were ended up with people that we thought weren't doing the job the way it was supposed to be done. And we had a round of layoffs last year that me as a CEO for a young company, it was pretty insane, like just hiring rapidly and then having to go with layoffs and dealing with everything that comes with it. And then reskilling up this year, but now doing it with more learnings and, you know, having a more clear sense of what we're trying to do, having a better organizational structure. So one of the big things that I've had to do multiple times over the last couple of years is just restructuring the team till it works. And uh, a couple months ago, we did a big restructure in the middle of our sprint to get the app out, which wasn't planned. And a lot of these things often aren't. 
where I was just noticing that certain aspects of how the team was organized was not working as well because there was often wasted work. Someone would do something that someone else was doing in a different way and both things wouldn't work uh, harmoniously together. Um, so with that, we arrived at what we have currently, which is a structure I'm incredibly proud of. The org chart looks incredibly symmetrical. <laughs> we have basically five pillars that report directly to me, which are app. So the app team is essentially responsible for everything that happens on the back end, everything that, you know, the app itself, the UI, the campaigns, the leaderboards and profiles and connections, and just all of that is under the app team. And then we have a game team. The game team does everything that is AR. So the app, the game team doesn't do any 2D UI or any other things that the app team takes care of. It is entirely our gameplay focused. And then we have an art team that takes care of all the 3D asset creation, models, cinematics, web, all, all that kind of stuff is under art. And all these three teams are structured in a way where usually we have a lead developer, a lead designer, and then essentially a product manager, someone who's making sure everything's working. So, and those three people report to me directly. I have like syncs with all of these pillars on a weekly basis where all three stakeholders are present and the designers that are responsible for app don't touch game. You know, we've created these clear divides. And then we, the two additional pillars are ops and growth. And those are obviously critical to have. And we're, we have really strong ops team and everything's really cleanly done. It's, I'm very proud of our code base. It's incredibly modular. It's very thoughtful. We're constantly refactoring. Everything's just really nice. There's very little debt, technical debt. Design team, everything is managed in Figma and we have just everything connects to each other. Strict design systems, everyone's in sync about what's happening. I'm really proud of the organization we've been able to make really quickly. And each of the teams knows that we're building in a new medium and know that our setups never should just be how setups in other places are. We start from scratch every time and we ask ourselves the right questions till we arrive at a structure that works. Mm. Long way from one, Rick. Man, if I tell you about the way some of those projects look like in the back end, it's like Jack and I joke about it all the time. Like we were taking these to festivals and people were writing about us and whatnot and the unity projects were just horrendous we were just tons of game objects laid up with sim we had a script called just a simple timer and we would just time them on and off to make them work it was very put together but the user experience came across polished because we were good at that but now it's it's kind of ridiculous i'm incredibly proud of uh, the code based and the design systems and everything it's i it's my dream mm. yeah I like to think of when people take the leap to doing a startup, they're observing something about the way the world works and they're making an argument that it should work differently. How are you thinking about that relative to Jadu? I think there are just a lot of different aspects in which that happens. There, on one hand, it's like, how is the team structured and you know what we're trying to do there? We try to not have too much of a preconceived notion. Similarly, AR as a medium constantly just means that whatever we're doing, we have to think of it differently. So we're operating in the mobile gaming space now, right? And like, if you think about mobile gaming, on one hand, it's the most significant market. It's $90 billion a year, quickly growing from here. 
But if you think about most mobile games, a lot of them are glorified slot machines or, or more underwhelming versions of what's possible on PC and console. And one of the things that one of the consultants we're working with, he brought it up with me recently. He said 70% of people that play mobile games have never in their lives played a PC or console game. You know, wow. So they don't have the context of gaming culture in the same way. So many people just play mobile games and don't even think of themselves as a gamer necessarily. So we are trying to bring a really fresh take to mobile gaming. We're saying, you know what, mobile gaming, just completely forget about what it is currently. Imagine if it's mobile. Imagine if you have to move to play it. It's literally mobile. Yeah, it's literally mobile. And like that's just clearly distinct from what's possible on PC and console. It is original to this platform. It's native to this medium. And so that gives us a brand new frame. Everything we think about in terms of mobile gaming is we're thinking about how do we make a mobile game, you know? And that's just one of the many aspects in which I think the way we work is different from how whatever lineage we're operating in was doing the same thing. I mean, Jadu meaning magic, I think is really apt for, I mean, many reasons that I don't know, but one reason that I'm thinking of now is you're imbuing these phones with a new kind of magic by prompting people to, of course you could walk around with your phone, but you're not thinking of it as a portal into a gaming environment and you're flipping that on its head. Yeah. And that's actually been my favorite feedback so far from people that have played our beta. We've had around 10,000 users playing around hundred thousand matches while we were in beta. And when we ask for feedback or when we look at what people are saying on Twitter and discord, often it's things like I just had a brand new experience with my phone and I thought I could never have a brand new experience with my phone again, because I've had my phone for a decade now and does the same things it does every day. And now suddenly I'm using it to interact with my space and move around and try to follow things. It's not behavior people are used to when they're just slouching on their phones, scrolling around. So it's introducing mechanics with something we're really familiar with, but mechanics that are brand new that I believe are using the device for its full potential because modern smartphones have a lot of computing power, way more than is required to just watch a bunch of videos gyroscopes and LiDAR sensors, those are the things that make this medium special and things that other gaming mediums have not had access to. Novelty consoles have existed and have come, portable concept, uh, consoles have come out at various times, but they've never reached the kind of scale and ubiquity that mobile as a platform has. I think that if we are able to do what we're trying to do here, which is use a mobile phone to its full potential, use all the things that make it unique and offer an experience that people have never had, I think a lot of people would want to engage with that experience. Obviously, this is being released as a mobile game. You'll get it on the app stores. Do you differentiate in your mind, though, between like what you're describing with the like candy crushification of mobile games versus what you're offering? Our starting point was so different and we knew nothing about games or mobile games to some extent, right? Like we're, our, our background is not in that. That initially we had a lot of new things to offer. And I think that at this point, we are circling back to the candy crushes of the world and actually trying to understand how we operate within, within the context of what mobile gaming has made work so far. So that's why single player campaigns and levels and level design and you complete a level that there is a core mechanic, which is you fight 
you try to win, you get a reward at the end. And now we repeat this mechanic in the form of various campaigns and stories, which is the foundation of how most mobile gaming works. They have a core loop that you duplicate a bunch of times to form levels, eventually campaigns. Our core loop is very distinct and very different. It engages your space and does everything in AR. But now we're able to learn from these existing games in terms of establishing like campaigns and structures and give people things that they can go through. So we left that part till the end. We didn't want to have our process be biased based on what people had already built on this platform. So we started from scratch and put our blinders on. But now that we have something that we feel like is novel and compelling, we're going back to best practices that already work in the space and trying to work them into our system. Are you encountering any misconceptions about like when you're when you're engaging with your Discord community with folks that are on the beta, are you encountering any misconceptions about what augmented reality is or what you believe its potential is? Absolutely. I think uh, a lot of people have a reaction of, "Oh my god, that looks so sick." But I'm going to wait for the headset. You know, it's like it I I bet it's not that good on mobile. It takes it till people actually play it to be like, wait, what? Mobile phones can do this? I, I, I had no idea that this was even possible. So a lot of times when people kind of see it, they do approach it with skepticism. So that's just a default. And then we have to win them over by showing them things that are really compelling. That's why I think younger audiences are way more open to it because they have less of a preconceived notion about what this is supposed to be and they're willing to try it out a bit more. Um, But yeah, and obviously a lot of people are constantly confused about whether it's VR, AR, communicating 3D reality-oriented experiences in the form of photos and videos on the internet is never easy. People always end up having a different idea of what it actually is. So we also do a lot of promo videos and cinematics that we build that are more full AR, where you know we do a lot of work in post, but people have negative relations with those kinds of things. Obviously, the magically whale and everything comes up. But sometimes those things are quite necessary to communicate the conceptually what is taking place. Mm. Yeah. Do you imagine that there would come a point in time where Jada would function on headsets? Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, you know, like we, AR as a medium, like at the end of the day, needs your hands to be available, you know, amongst other things. Like that's a really big one looking through a hole like trying to look around it's not it's not the way it's going to be forever but i think there is a lot you can do with it right now so headsets like we are now a venture-backed company that has a certain runway and like we gotta make this thing work during that time or at least get it to the next level during that time so we can only engage with headsets to a limited extent because that's going to take time we're not quite there yet but the apple vision pro is something i'm insanely excited about Imagine from my perspective, right? Everyone's talking about how there is going to be eventually an Apple headset. And everyone always just assumed it's going to be VR because no one cared about AR ever anyway, right? Like AR never really had crazy funding rounds or crazy hype around it. It was always just a relatively ignored medium. And for me to just stick to it anyway for seven years, and then Apple finally releases the storied headset and it's AR first, and that's what they're leading with is it's AR, it's not VR. You can go into VR parts at the time, but for the most part, it's passed through AR. And they make all these decisions in it that are super in line with the way that we imagine this technology. So one of them is that Facebook Meta always shows their headset 
being a bit more active. People are getting up and playing fitness games and Beat Saber and walking around. Whereas Apple's concepts were more people are sitting on their couch and they're using their hands and gestures and to move um, around, which is very much in line with what we're doing because we're doing a third person thing where you're controlling your character rather than moving around so much yourself. So that's just one of the, what I feel like are many decisions that Apple ended up making that I think reinforced some of the mechanics that we were developing. So I'm really excited about the Vision Pro. We are in communication with Apple. They're very generous in the sense that, you know, we're, we're discussing what the possibilities could be. I think it's more likely that rather than seeing the full version of Jadu as a game work on the headset, we will probably see more storytelling, like imagine a backstory of one of our characters and a 10 minute long narrative experience on a headset. Those kinds of projects will likely happen before we get to the full game because it's still a bit further out in terms of the headset finding proper mass uh, market. But we're going to do these storytelling experiences. We're eventually going to build a game available on the headsets. We're going to make it cross-platform. There's a lot that we're just really excited about diving into with this. In fact, we have a developer who's full-time focused on the Apple Vision Pro SDK already. So we're doing some early exploration. But I I can tell you that's going to take some time. I believe it. Yeah. These are critical moments, though. I think people often discount that like, in these super early days when it's the most confusing, that's when these interaction languages are being developed. Absolutely. And it's not just a few years, it's often decades. And I think that's why just sticking to it, and it's it's worked for us. It's been seven years now, it's crazy to think of that we've been doing AR exclusively for that amount of time and have never lost track or focus. We've never touched VR. Every time we get pissed at VR project, we've always just been like, we just don't do VR. It's not our medium. Our medium is AR. They're not the same thing. Don't confuse them. They're distinct. One is about your re- existing reality, and the other one is about tra- transporting you somewhere else. Just conceptually different. Mm. So just to like state it baldly, why should somebody take the jump to play Jadu on day one when it's released? Because you really are going to get to see the trajectory of how it evolves. Because we, at this point, have a pretty insane team. We have in really crazy product velocity. Not only are you going to get an experience that is incredibly rich in terms of multimedia, you're moving around, it's great music, great sound, great VFX, great sound effects, haptics on every moment. Just there is real craft in what we're building. It's not a quickly spun up mobile game that's trying to hop on a trend or something. It's like something that we're really putting a lot of love and attention into and you experience it in the product and it's only going to get crazier from here. The characters we're building, the new mechanics that are coming out, it's a frame to experience what AR is going to be for the rest of our lifetimes. A lot of the work we did early on is now taught in new media departments at USC and UC Berkeley and whatnot. And this may come across as, oh, it's just a game, but every single move and mechanic that we're building showcases what techniques are going to be used in storytelling and games in AR that we're going to be witnessing for the rest of our lives. So I think that's a compelling reason to play a game on your mobile phone. Mm. It's funny. It's like so many of the bigger companies have taken an inductive approach, like you referenced the metaverse. So the inductive approach is the metaverse will be a thing and we're going to now create the container for the thing to happen type of thing you're almost coming at it from a deductive approach, which is 
let's make a really excellent fighting game and the behaviors and social dynamics and culture will emerge and tell us what the metaverse or, or you call it the bloom will become. Absolutely. It's like, it's not even a new concept, right? Like the more cliched examples would just be like Fortnite or something, you know, you do have a simple core mechanic, but then when people are spending enough time in a game, it becomes a social space to start spending social time. Then you expand it, you add more social functionalities and features and creator tools. And suddenly you have something that is more comparable to what people imagine when they think of a metaverse. And I, I really think that this is an interesting trend that's happening right now where Epic announced a bunch of layoffs and it seems like they're doubling down on Fortnite and stopping a lot of side projects that might be actually quite successful. You know, same's happening at Niantic. They're also laying people off, stopping a lot of side projects and doubling down on Pokemon Go. I'm seeing a lot of organizations double down on their main offering and try to make it more of a social experience that where they add more mechanics that appeal to larger amounts of people because having a lot of people in one place engage and kind of sustain is what starts to form like a metaverse like space. So it's critical for us to establish a mechanic and have a reason for why people are coming. And then once they're staying, give them the additional creator tools and the types of things that are going to form community and form social interactions. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that's saying no quote. It's like saying no to get to the yes of the metaverse. If there yes. will be a yes, I have a few recurring questions that I do with every guest, given that the show is called Reality Studies, they're lightning around style questions about reality. What's one thing you wish people paid more attention to? I think the answer for me would just be reality itself. Because like at this point, our screens and everything are so compelling. They really are. And there are so many distractions that are available to us that I think our perception of reality has become really skewed, especially in the US. It's something that I experienced. There's a distinction when you come from another country to the US where over here, everything feels like a simulation just because the amount of marketing and fashion and the amount of like meta systems that have existed for such long periods of time. Um, and the way that it's taking place in other countries is also really crazy now because everyone has smartphones and often living standards in other countries really suck. So not focusing on reality is really compelling. And um, that's why like disassociation and just uh, retreatist kind of ideas around technology are so prevalent. And that's one of the strengths of our medium to begin with is that it allows some of the excitement of the digital world to filter into the real world and actually bring attention back to reality and the things that often go overlooked. Mm. As a quick follow-up question to that, Given the work you're doing with your global team, given your background growing up in Pakistan and now working with folks in Pakistan, these like the Tekken champion, is there any insight or learning about contemporary digital culture that you think the West is like totally missing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think like uh, one of the things that's happening is like a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world that otherwise have been just very disconnected from the rest of the world are now sharing their sense of humor and their realities with everyone. Like whenever my Instagram reels feed is really weird because it's constantly shifting between American stuff and Pakistani stuff. I don't know how they decide when I'm in what mood, but whenever it goes back to the Pakistani reels, a lot of them are actually like uh, random workers in a farm 
joking around with each other, making weird videos. And like, I'm sure you might have seen some, it's, it's kind of a joke of how Indian Pakistani videos are really bizarre and people are just putting random filters and weird like dynamics over it. There's one right now that's these like stories, these Indian stories that people are telling with some kind of uh, game engine creator thing. And they're so abstract and bizarre the way that they're told. And they're definitely like people laugh at them because they, you know, are so removed from the traditional storytelling structures that people are used to. So I don't know if there is any deep insight there, but I do think the democratization of what content looks like and just how it can be so different all over the world is really compelling to look at. Mm. Final one. What's one moment where your sense of reality was disrupted? I came back from school and I turned on the TV. I was in Kerala, Pakistan, and the news said that Assam bin Laden was killed in Aptabad, which was my hometown. And that was by far the moment that I felt like the world was just this weird simulation because I, I couldn't believe it. I grew up in Aptabad. It's vacation town kind of thing. It's a small hill station town where a lot of people from the south go to in the summer when it gets really hot. And it was just incredibly peaceful. Nothing ever happened there. And just seeing that Osama bin Laden was killed five minutes from the spot on which I was born. And then I called up my cousins and they, they saw the helicopters crash that evening. And just Osama bin Laden growing up was this most wanted man on the planet. No one could track him down. It just the, the myth around it was so insane that the idea that he was found five minutes from my house was just like uh, reality shattering, truly. Wow. Yeah. Cannot imagine. All right. So we have uh, arrived toward the end of the interview. Is There's so much that you have to say about AR and Jadu that I'm sure I um, we could only scratch the surface in this interview. But is there anything that we miss that you feel like is important for people to to know or consider about any of the aforementioned? Play the game. Obviously, like it's my job to promote it, make sure that people get to it. I'm really curious to see how audiences engage with it. And I would say if you're a listener who's going to go and actually play and engage, like put yourself in the shoes of the people making it. I think it's an interesting exercise. I try to do that with most media that I consume just happens automatically at this point. But especially for a new medium of AR, thinking about, hey, why did they make this choice? Why is this thing here? Why is this indicator pointing to me here? Why does this event take place before this thing? I think it will get your brain thinking about the medium in a way that makes your gameplay experience actually way more compelling than if you're not thinking about the medium. I would love for our audience and our players to be in it, not just for the story and the fighting and the experience that is on the surface, but also because what this means, what this is trying to be. We're trying to be the fighting game of a medium in which a lot of the other people that are building stuff are not building stuff that's angsty and that is trying to be intense in this format. So I hope that people treat the game as a fight for this medium to become compelling over our lifetimes and, you know, just join us for that ride. Asit, thank you for being here. This podcast is edited and produced by Adam Labrie and me, Jesse Damiani. Adam Labrie also directed, shot, and edited the video version of the podcast which is available on YouTube. Music is by Eaters, sound effects by Eric Medias at soundimage.org. For more information, please visit realitystudies.co. And if you appreciate the work I'm doing, 
please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing it. Until next time.